A warm welcome again to all of you, a special welcome to our online audience and those who are here in the house, we welcome you on this beautiful Sunday morning as we continue our sermon series, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Face It, Accepting Truth, Embracing Change. And uh, we're, over these last weeks, we've been talking about uh, biblical stories that call us in this new year to face our circumstances and face our challenges and do what we need to do uh, to live the abundant and joyful life. Amen. And so we've looked at the wise men facing the reality of King Herod. Last week we talked about Elijah, who was worn out facing uh, the needed change in his ministry. Today we embrace this powerful story of Deborah, which you've heard just a portion of the story from Judges. So today we're going to be spending time in Judges in the Old Testament. And if you have a Bible or the one in front of you, uh, you can turn there. And I'm going to give you time. We'll be in chapter 4 and 5. Uh, but it's a powerful story, one that's often not spent time with. Not, well, we don't really spend a lot of time with it, but I would encourage you to uh, spend time with it this week because it's a rich story and a powerful story. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you for this good and beautiful day. We thank you for your presence in our lives and your call upon us to face it, whatever it is, to face the possibilities of abundant life, to face the challenges in our own journey, to face the brokenness of our world, to face the much-needed health or financial or future uh, shifts that are present before us as people, as individuals, as followers of Christ, and as the church. God, we confess that often in the new year we make all kinds of resolutions. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to get this done, and I'm going to lose weight, and the list goes on. And then we find ourselves at Valentine's Day, uh, all of it lost. So God, we pray that these scriptures, this holy word from you, will help us to stay focused in facing our reality and accepting and embracing the change that needs to happen. Change is hard, but we pray that whether we do it on our own, we ask somebody to come alongside us, or somebody unexpected appears to help us, we will be open to make the change. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So my friend Melissa, who's also a pastor, is a hiker. She's also a runner. She also is in really great health and shape, and she really drives me crazy. Amen, right? You know, I, I'm not a hiker. I think you all know that. I do hike to the guest room. I occasionally hike to the activity center, but not like Melissa. Melissa's kind of a serious hiker. She's hiked uh, mountains in, uh, near Seattle, and uh, she's done mountain hikes in California, She's done mountain hikes in the Smoky Mountains, and she's even done some hikes in the hills of Wisconsin. So uh, she's an accomplished hiker. She has, yesterday we did a walk at Buffalo Creek, and uh, I had to depart because it was just too slick, but she had these weird traction spikes for her shoes. That's how serious she is. I was grateful I didn't have them because I didn't have to finish the walk. Amen, right? Uh, so she said, well, you need to buy these. I said, great idea. I never will, right? <laughs> Melissa tells a story that one time she was on a hike in Argentina in the, the mountains in the southern region of the country. She was with a good friend of hers and with a guide and a few other people, and uh, they decided to take this two- or three-day hike in Argentina. And so her friend, a United Methodist missionary, said, are you really up for it? And not wanting to appear weak, she said, I'm ready. But she knew as an accomplished and well-versed hiker that she had not really done the work and training for this kind of hike. Because I don't know if you know this, you just don't put on a backpack and go, right? You have to work. And she reminds me of that. 
and that she hikes all the time going different places short term around here with her backpack filled with weights so that when she finally does come to the hike, the real one, she's prepared. She said, James, I wasn't ready at all for this hike, but I didn't want to miss the opportunity to say I'd hiked in Argentina, right? And she didn't want to disappoint her friend, and the guide kept encouraging that she could do it, and so she began to pack her backpack and to prepare for the hike. But it became pretty clear early in the hike as they began to ascend the mountain that, in fact, she was not ready for it. Several times the guide said, do you need to turn around? Absolutely not. She said, I was determined in every way not for this to collapse. I didn't care what happened to me, but I was not going to appear weak in any way. Amen, <laughs> right? She said to me that eventually her friend kept saying to her, Melissa, are you going to be okay? Are you going to make it? And she said, I am, but he, she realized that particular breaks, he began to take a water bottle, a something out of her bag, and put it in his own. She said internally she was really ticked off, right? Because she didn't really want people to take care of her. But she said deep, deep down she was extremely grateful because she knew she wouldn't make it on the hike. Eventually she finally just confessed that she wasn't ready and so the guide reluctantly took a few more things, and so did her friend, and eventually they made it to the summit. She was grateful that someone, even though she was reluctant, stepped in and took part of the load, even though she couldn't admit she couldn't make it. Now, I'll say that is a helpful story to me when I think about my own life and journey in faith. Amen? There are times that I want you, and maybe you want me, and maybe you want others, and I want others to believe I have it all together. Amen? I don't need your help. I've got it. I've got it all together. Everything's together. But deep down in the very core of ourselves, we are not willing to admit we can't do it. Or sometimes we do admit to say we can't carry it, and then people judge us for it. Amen? Like, I can't do this, or I thought I was ready for this, but I'm not, or I know I said yes, but now I need to say no. And then occasionally, God will send somebody along that we don't expect, like a guide on a hike in Argentina who will take our water bottles, and we're totally thrown off guard that this stranger has helped escort us into a new reality. Today's story is full of all of these stories. It's a powerful story from the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Judges follows the entry into the promised land first by Joshua, then worked out through Caleb into a land of, of a blessing, remember, milk and honey. The Israelites have traveled all those years from Egypt's uh, oppression. They've come in, and now Joshua and then Caleb have led them in. But whatever the case, they're never able to fully settle the land, Right? There are other people there. There are other communities there. There are the Philistines on the south shore, the Phoenicians uh, on the north. There are the Canaanites and the Moabites. And constantly they're in battle or they're being tempted to embrace other gods or other ways. And this is the constant story in Judges. In fact, in Judges, what happens is the Israelites commit to God fully and they get to a place of joy and then they sin against God and it's just like this. Sounds like our own life. Amen, right? So who are these judges? Well, I, I want to just give you a couple of characters in the story today that you're going to need to know. I know you already know it, but I just want to make sure. The judges are not quite like what we think of with judges in black robes sitting behind high desks, right? 
The judges of the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture were people appointed by God to do two things, arbitrate disagreements and help create unity and deal with all kinds of issues in the community because there were no kings, right? In fact, at this point, people were said that God is your king. You don't need a king. Eventually, you know, the folks will say we need a king, but that's another story. Amen? The judges also provided leadership in combating battles dealing with the Canaanites, the Moabites, all the different ites, right? And the Philistines and everyone in between. So they were interesting leaders, and there are a bunch of judges. I'm sure you know some of them. Othenio is probably considered the best judge of all. He comes at the beginning of the book and is very faithful, followed by Ehud, who had a, a, a tendency to use his left hand, which is lifted up as well. Uh, there's also Samson, you remember? He wasn't such a great judge, remember? He couldn't really keep a relationship together. He would do whatever, whoever he was dating at the time, and eventually Delilah was his demise. Amen? You remember Gideon. We kind of lift up Gideon as a, a, a pillar of faith, but he really wasn't. He constantly questioned God. He created a golden... Uh, he thought, I mean, he had all kinds of issues. So these folks are kind of flawed, right? Uh, some better than others. The Israelites were a tribe, tribal federation, 12 tribes, and that's constantly an issue in the book of Judges. Sometimes all the tribes will be together in their battle against, and at other times certain tribes will not, and other tribes will, and the tribes who did get in the battle will then take it out on the ones who didn't. Sounds familiar. King Jabin is the one I want you to know today. The Canaanites had been there for a long time. Their capital was Hazor. The Canaanites uh, were part of worshiping Baal, the fertility god, Asherah, and many others. They'd been long established in the land, and King Jabin was the head of their kingdom. Sisera, or Sisera, was uh, the military general, and he's kind of a ruthless guy, and uh, he's known for a lot of things because the, during this period, the Canaanites had ruled the Israelites for 20 years and really had been cruel and hard. And Sisera in particular, this is going to really impress you, he had 900 iron chariots. Now, I know for you and I that doesn't really mean much, right? But in an age that's moving from the Bronze Age to the Iron Age, if you're dealing with a group of people like the Israelites who basically have spears and arrows and that sort of thing, and you've got 900 iron chariots, you're in, you're in good luck, right? right? These are powerful, led by horses. You can basically move anywhere and do a lot of damage. Keep that in mind. 900 iron chariots, right? How many? 900. Now we introduce Deborah. Deborah, or in Hebrew, Deborah. In fact, the reading in synagogues yesterday was this reading. That's really fascinating. We didn't plan that. I, you know, it's just interesting. I learned that through everything that happened yesterday. Deborah, or Deborah, is a woman who lives in the highlands of Ephraim, a particular tribal area. And she kind of has a desk and a chair and camps out under a palm tree called the Palm Tree of Deborah. Fascinating, right? People would see the palm tree from afar and they would go to Deborah. And according to scripture, she was a wise person, a wise woman, and she would help people arbitrate their conflicts and concerns. But she also had a strong level of leadership. In fact, among all the judges I've mentioned, besides probably Othiniel and maybe Ehud, she was probably the most integrous and the most faithful to God. Deborah uh, would meet people and do this kind of work, and eventually she has a vision from God that it's time to throw these Canaanites and their 900 chariots to the side. The other person you need to know is Barak. 
Barak is the kind of military leader for the Israelites, and he is reluctant to act, and we'll hear that later in the story, but remember Barak. And then there's Heber the Kenite. I know you're familiar with Heber. Let's say his name together, because if I have a dog, I'm going to name him Heber. Heber, Heber the Kenite. Uh, you probably know the Kenites, right? Do you remember them? They are the descendants of Hobab. Do you remember Hobab? He's also known as Jethro or Ruel, okay? I know you're now, it's all coming back to you now, right? Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, remember? Okay, I know, it's hard to remember. He had three names, Jethro, Hobab, and Ruel. You've learned a lot today already, right? So the Kenites were the descendants of these folks who long had good relationships with the Israelites. In fact, Jethro had helped guide Moses in his early leadership. So remember the Heber, the Kenite. But Heber, which is interesting, is a blacksmith, okay? He works with iron, beginning to see the connections. Uh, and then Jael is Heber's wife, Heber's wife. And Jael is going to play an important part of this role. And she, of course, is married to Heber the Kenite. Remember, the Kenites are the descendants of Jethro. And remember that Heber is a blacksmith. Good. All right. And then a minor character that appears in chapter 5 is Sisera, the Canaanite general. It's his mother. Okay. Do you think you have all the characters right? Let me recap them for you just to be careful. Remember, King Jabed is the king of the Canaanites. Sisera is his general and has 900 iron chariots. Deborah is a judge with great leadership. Barak is the Israelite commander. Heber the Kenite, descended from Hobab or Jethro or Ruel, whichever your favorite name is for him, is a blacksmith. Jael is his wife, and then there's Sisera's mother. I think you're ready for the story. Are we ready? Okay. So according to chapter 4, if you're following along, and just like I said in the book of Judges, the Israelites, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, the man who used his left hand, died. So the Lord sold them into the hand of King Jabin of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. And then the Israelites cried out to the Lord for help. For Sisera had 900 chariots of iron, and it oppressed the Israelites cruelly for 20 years. So again, you remember, 20 years they've been under this oppression. At that time, Deborah, a prophetess, and this is important, in a culture and basically in the stories of a people where men are mostly in charge, here's a very strong woman named Deborah. She's a prophetess and the wife of Lapidoth, who, and she was a judge of Israel. Now what's interesting, I know you already know this, but the wife of Lapidoth can also be translated Woman of torches or woman of fire? I can see the women going, I like Deborah, right? Okay, right. She's, she's amazing, right? So the woman of fire, Deborah, is judging Israel. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and all the Israelites came up to her for judgment, so she was well respected. She sent and summoned Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh and Naphtali, and said to him, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take position at Mount Tabor, bringing 10,000 from the tribe of Naphtali and the tribe of Zebulun. Those are two of the tribes of the 12. I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the Wadi Kishon. Just remember, Wadi means river, okay? So by the river, Kishon, 
with his chariots and troops, and I will give him into your hand. And so basically Deborah's followed God's direction. It's time to throw off these Canaanites. And she calls Barak in, and they meet under the palm tree. And she said, God's spoken to me. And Barak, you need to call 10,000 troops from these two tribes, Zebulun and Naphtali. You need to go to the Wadi Kishon. You need to camp out there. And when Sisera is drawn out, you need to take out the army. Barak does an interesting thing. He says to Deborah, if you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. It's kind of shocking, frankly, in this story, frankly, because here's Deborah, a strong woman, but here's the head of the military, especially for Naphtali and Zebulun, and he says to this strong woman who's had a vision from God that, in fact, I'm not going if you don't go. It's almost like you do it, I'm not going to do it, or I'll do it only if you do it, and we all have done that in our lives, amen? Now, scholars spend a lot of time trying to figure out why Barak was reluctant. Well, I think one of the reasons is Sisera was powerful, and he had how many chariots? And they were made of... So, you know, that's a big problem, right? Some believe that uh, he was reluctant because he didn't know if he had the strong leadership to do it. Maybe he hadn't worked out for the hike, if you will. And so he knew he needed her wisdom to help guide him in this process. Others believe he was not for sure they could win and that Deborah had made a bad decision and this would be a problem. And he was putting her on the line to say, if you really think this is God's work, you're going to prove that by jumping in with me. And then others believe that he was a chauvinist and didn't believe the woman could have a vision from God and he wasn't going to listen to it unless she went with him. Well, Deborah says, okay. I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not lead to your glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Now, in the culture that we're reading and experiencing, that was a pretty radical thing, right? Basically, she says, Barak, I will go with you. I will do what you ask of me. I will provide leadership. We'll go in this together, but you will not get an interview on CNN, guaranteed. Amen, right, okay? This will not be your glory. So... Deborah got up, and she went with Barak to Kadesh, and Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and 10,000 warriors went up behind him, and Deborah went up with him. So, miraculously, all of this comes together. They head to the Wadi Kishon, and, and there we are, ready for battle. Now, remember Heber? He was a blacksmith. He was also a Kenite. Remember, he was the descendant of Jethro, Hobab, Ruel, whichever name you like best. Well, they just throw in these verses here. I think it's fascinating. Heber the Kenite had separated from the other Kenites. So something happened where Heber decided to leave the tribe of Kenite and, and go to a different place. And you'll soon learn why. He is the descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. And he had encamped so far away at Elizalian Neem, which is near Kadesh. So what we know is is that Heber the Kenite had left his homeland, moved his family, moved his clan, and they lived on the outskirts of where Sisera was because Heber is a blacksmith. Are you awake out there? Heber is a blacksmith, and he wants to be near the camp of Sisera because Sisera has 900 chariots made of... Ah, it's all about economics, right? He's smart. He goes to where the business is. He's probably even known by Sisera, at least some of the commands. He's probably repaired, built, helped to support the 900 iron chariots. So here we are. 
When Caesar was told that Barak had gone up to Mount Tabor, so he learns that through their satellite tracking that, uh, you know, things are bad and these 10,000 folks have amassed themselves along the Wadi Kishon, he heads over with those 900 chariots of iron and all the troops that were with him. Then Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. The Lord is indeed going out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 warriors following him, and the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic before Barak. Now, some people believe that uh, God used the Wadi Kashan for this, because the Wadi Kashan, I don't know if you know about wadis, they're also known as rivers. In, in uh, Israel, wadis are often dry until there's a massive rainstorm, and then they're very wet, right? And sometimes you can't tell that the ground is wet, and so if the chariots get into mud, what happens? It's total chaos. That's, that's just a possibility, right? So the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and all his army into a panic, and ultimately they lose the battle. But this says something about Sisera. Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And while Barak pursued the chariots and the army, all the army of Sisera fell by the sword and no one was left. But Sisera had fled away. So Sisera, the commander of this great army, is basically a coward. He sees that they're losing. He, in the midst of all the chaos, gets out of his chariot and he runs away. And I want to tell you where he goes. So Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael. Remember, she's the wife of Heber, the Kenite. He's a blacksmith. I just want to make sure you knew. So Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, for there was peace between King David of Hazor and the clan of Heber, the Kenite, because Heber was basically the automotive repair guy for the chariots. Amen? All right. Jael came out to meet Sisera. He might have even known her. And he said to, she said to him, turn aside, and she calls him my lord, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, have no fear. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. In other translations, she covered him with a blanket, a blanket, blanket. And then he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she says, oh, no, no, no. She opened a skin of warm milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the entrance of the tent and if anybody comes and asks you, is anyone there, say no. So, here's Jael. She's the wife of Heber the Kenite. They have a business relationship with Sisera and King Jabin. He's asking for her to hide him. She indeed does that. She says, come on in. She calls him my lord. Clearly they have a relationship. He says he's exhausted. Could he have some water? She said, how about some warm milk? Perfectly. Perfect, perfect gift. She takes him into the living room. She pulls up the rug. He gets under it. She folds it over him. She slips in the milk. It's warm. He's tired. And what do you think he does? He falls asleep. And so he just goes right to sleep. And he tells her, if anybody comes, tell them I'm not here. And so she says, okay. But Jael, the wife of Heber, and here's where it gets tough, ready? She takes a tent peg and a hammer in her hand and went softly to Sisera and drove a peg right through his temple until it went into the ground. And he was lying fast asleep from weariness and he died. Did you expect that? It's fascinating. She gets him in a place where she realizes this is the chance to get rid of him. 
And after he's fallen asleep, after mothering him, she drives a tent peg into his head. She has another name among some jokes. I don't know if you know what her other name is. Peggy. I knew that would be lost on some of you, right? I had to do that, right? Amen, right? That's not really true. Okay. My favorite part of this story is, why would Jael do this, right? And so there are several things that people believe and scholars believe. Jael might have seen that indeed this army had been defeated and her husband's economic and political agreements were going to get them killed as well. So what better way to spare yourself from the conquering army than to say when Barak drives up and says, have you seen Sisera? Oh, I have, and let me take you to him, and there he is under the rug, right? You're not going to take out her family. Other people believe that maybe she was strong enough to know that Sisera was a horrible man, and and maybe in their work in dealing with him, she was ready to be out of that, and she delivered her family. And other people believe that God used her as an instrument, and she did it, and other people think she's sinister, right? What a horrible thing to do, right? But it's interesting. Remember Deborah's promise to Barak? If If I go with you, the folks will be delivered and free because of a woman. And I think we all think it's going to be Deborah, but it's really Jael. Now, you may know that eventually the Israelites are then free, the oppression is over, and in chapter 5, and I would encourage you to do this today, Deborah writes a song. It's called the Song of Deborah. And uh, the Song of Deborah is quite interesting because it rejoices and celebrates the deliverance of the Israelites from the Canaanites, and it, it lifts up Deborah and her leadership. Barak even gets a better look than he thought he would. Uh, they talk about all of the chaos and God's work in the song, and in fact, ultimately, Jael is lifted as the deliverer and a wonderful and faithful person, and then they throw in Sisera's mother, saying she's waiting for the chariots to return, and they never return. Some scholars believe the Song of Deborah might be the oldest original text in the whole Hebrew Bible. It's an ancient song that resonates with the Song of Miriam and the Song of Moses in Exodus after the deliverance to the Sea of Reeds. It's a powerful story. It's a troubling story. It's a a story, and you're probably saying, okay, Pastor, great, glad to hear this story. What does it have to do with facing it, right? But, But think about the characters in the story. Deborah is wise and open to God's direction. And when God speaks to her because of her integrity and her strong leadership, she acts. She acts immediately. She knows exactly what to do. She faces the reality that after 20 years of oppression, the time has come for her people to be delivered, and she doesn't hesitate. She's an example for us that often when we keep putting off the hard decisions of our life or the hard decisions of our community or the hard decisions of our world, Deborah says, this is the time. In fact, she says to Barak, get up, it's now time. Barak is also helpful to me because whatever his reluctance, he realizes, much like Melissa on that hike, he cannot do it alone for whatever reason. 
And so he's willing to sacrifice his well-known reputation and a spot on public television and a million tweets to do what's right and get Deborah's help because he, I believe, sees that Deborah's partnership will be helpful to him in the victory over the Canaanites. And I think that's important to us, that sometimes when we need to face hard realities, we cannot do it by ourselves. Amen? And we need to admit that and say, I need a strong leader, a wise counsel, a therapist, a spiritual director. I need to do more research. I need to think about things. Or we need to look at broader pictures. What's really going on here? What's happening? Why is there violence in the world? Why are people, you know what I'm saying? And then Jael, about encouraging the tent peg, please. <laughs> please do not stop by Dick's Sporting Goods on the way home, right? But what I am saying is Jael is used by God in a way that's unexpected. And this is probably a big leap, but I'm going to take it. Jael is the unexpected solution. Jael sees the opportunity for saving her own family, but in fact saving the people. And when the moment presents itself, she's pretty wise in making it happen so that the reign of terror from Sisera is over. I find this story very troubling. Amen? I would encourage you not to read it to your kids. And there are some kids in the room today, right? It's a hard story. But it is an important story about people of faith facing complex and uncertain realities to come to a place of change and embrace and freedom. And I would say to us, as people of Jesus... As followers of Christ in a world where people are taken hostage, tsunamis destroy an island, people speak rhetoric of hatred toward one another, and compromise seems to be impossible, that sometimes we believe somebody else is going to do it, or we're overwhelmed and can't do it ourselves, and we're reluctant to seek one another and work together for God's goodness in the world. Face it. Deborah said, face it. Brock, face it. And Brock said, I can't do it alone. She said, I'll face it with you. And then she said, it's going to be somebody else who's going to deliver us, but we're going to receive that. And the three of them together create the liberation that brought hope to the people of Israel. I'm going to close with a quote. And I think it's just helpful as we celebrate this Martin Luther King weekend. I'm really, I'm trying to figure it out about how to live in this current reality. I don't know about you. It's just so divided and so broken and decisions can't be made and we're, everything's changing and the pandemic's complex and we're all trying to figure it out. Amen? And some of us are facing personal stuff with our children or our grandchildren or our partners or our spouses or our our reality. Some of us are unsure about what the future holds. Some of us are anxious. Some of us face some really hard decisions and we keep putting them off. And, and I just think this story speaks kind of the complexities of facing realities. But MLK said these final words, these great words in a speech. The ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience. Let me say that again. The ultimate measure of a person is not where they stand in moments of comfort and convenience, but where they stand at times of challenge and controversy, where they stand 
at times of challenge and controversy. I find that powerful to me. That in the midst of this chaos, will I embrace and hear what God is saying like Deborah? Will I seek the help of others like Barack and partner together? And will I make the hard decisions like Jael that might change things in a direction of hope and possibility? Will you pray with me? Holy God, we thank you for Deborah. We thank you for Barack. We thank you for Jael, we think. This story's hard to hear, and yet it is a story of faith that calls us to see the examples of facing difficulty and challenge in ways that transform us and challenge us to our very core. Whatever we're facing, help us to see your truth and embrace change. In the name of Jesus.